Is excellent. Is it excelente? How do you say it in in in, in Portuguese? Excelente. 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 They have eight. <laughs> I'm telling you, when it comes to the X, they have eight ways of saying it. Oh my goodness! They have eight ways of saying the X. Excelente. <laughs> Greetings, and thank you for joining us for this edition of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. I'm Mike Lewis, the managing editor of wherepeteris.com, and today I'm joined by Pedro Gabriel and Claire Navarro. Pedro Gabriel is a medical doctor specializing in oncology, and he works in a hospital in Portugal. On July 9th, Pedro will be giving a presentation for the Immortal Combat Men's Conference. For more information about how to register, please continue listening to this podcast or click on the link provided below. Claire Navarro works in the field of IT security, and before moving to Portugal last year, she was very active in Catholic apologetics and the pro-life movement in the Philippines. Both of them have been with me since the early days of WPI, and it's a pleasure to finally have them on the podcast. First, before we begin the program, I would like to thank our Patreon sponsors for their generosity, especially Lisa, Chris, and Steven. If you would like to support Where Peter Is, please click on the Patreon button on our website or on the link provided below. Thank you. Welcome, Pedro and Claire. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Pedro, why don't we get right to what you'll be speaking about and the nature of the conference. If you look below, you will see the link to register. So Pedro, how did this talk come about and what are you going to be talking about? Basically, there was uh, one of the persons who organized uh, this conference He read some of my articles and he thought that I could contribute to the conference. And so he reached out to me and he invited me and I I accepted. Basically, this conference is called Immortal Combat. It's about spiritual warfare. So I was invited to do a talk about Pope Francis and science and how Pope Francis's views on silence help us fight against the temptations of the false angel of light, that is Satan. So it not only sheds light on current events on the church, uh, but also it gives us insights in how to undertake this spiritual warfare against the false angel of light. Yeah, that definitely seems like a very relevant topic, especially in our polarized society. It becomes very easy to lash out with a comeback or a response. And often that seems to make things escalate rather than solve anything. Yes, indeed. Silence has that ability precisely to um, 
negate this polarization. This uh, the silence does not give father to the polarization. It tries to quell it actually, and I think that Pope Francis is um, a model on using silence to that end. Of course, it never satisfies the person who wants to engage in conflict, but it does help it not to escalate. And for that reason, I think we can learn from Pope Francis, even in our daily lives, when to keep silent, and that can also help us grow in holiness. Why don't we dial back a little bit and talk about you and I met on Facebook of all places. What I would notice was uh, these long threads by certain Catholic public figures where they would, they would make a post that was critical of Pope Francis and there would be a bombardment of maybe hundreds of comments that would be negative towards the Pope. And actually this is how I met both you and Claire. I would notice these solitary voices of hope or of uh, support for the Holy Father, people who actually tried to take the time to understand what he was saying and to explain his words in, in ways that showed that he really was speaking Catholic truth and that he was upholding and encouraging Catholic Orthodox perspective. Obviously, you're, you're, you live in Portugal and are a native Portuguese speaker, but your English is excellent. How did you, how did you stumble into this world of, of Anglophone apologetics? Well, I, I first stumbled in apologetics period. I was always a Catholic, but, and always had a positive perspective towards the Catholic Church. Uh, but uh, for many of my teenage years, even going to my young adult years, I was not practicing. Uh, that changed when John Paul II died because I felt a great void. I really liked him. I think at that time, most people liked him. Uh, the, the death of John Paul II had uh, given me more interest on the church. And Benedict, when he came when he was elected, I took that interest to the next level and tried to research about Benedict. And I found out that he had lots of common with me. He was also kind of a bookworm. And uh, I, I liked the character because he was kind of shy. He was kind of awkward. And basically, I'm also kind of like that. So <laughs> um, I liked it. I empathized, I empathized with him a lot. And I started devouring his books and studying theology in general. Of course, one, one studies these things. One is obviously directed by Google to... English-speaking American sites. Uh, so I studied a lot from Catholic Exchange, Catholic.com. So in those earlier years, um, when all of these controversies did not exist. And then I saw something that actually made me very sad and angry, which was the secular media started to attack Benedict 
And when I read, when I saw what the media wrote about Benedict, and then when I went to see his actual words, I thought that I saw that they were spinning it. They, they were not being honest. They were twisting his words so as to make him look like a tough guy, a very uh, ruffian uh, bully that wants to impose the faith and be like a fundamentalist. So I did not like that, and I started engaging in apologetics, but not in the English-speaking world, in Portuguese-speaking world. I had a blog in Portuguese, and my job was to refute every single accusation against Benedict. Okay, of course. Then, when Pope Francis was elected, I kind of discontinued the blog for personal reasons. But then I found out that Francis was being the victim of the same thing, but now it was not the secular media, it was the formerly Orthodox Catholic media that were doing the exact same thing. So people might say, oh, you change. No, I don't. I'm doing what I've been doing for almost, almost 15 years, okay? I have not, have not changed at all. But at that time, since I had discontinued my Portuguese, blog. In the meantime, Facebook came up, Twitter came up. There were more venues to, to defend the Pope. I started to, to frequent those, and I kind of transitioned from those authors in Catholic Exchange and from those websites and transitioned to their Facebook walls. And that's actually where I met you. I was debating a guy that was going against Amoris Letitia, and I found you. You seemed to like what I was writing, so I got invited for the project. So I've been with the project since the beginning. And Claire, too. <laughs> Claire has been even, even from more from the beginning than I have been. <laughs> yes, yes. So Claire was there even before. But I was one of the persons who insisted more for Michael. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so I inadvertently played matchmaker by uh, basically what I did was I brought together a group of Catholics who supported Pope Francis to varying degrees and with varying levels of, of Catholicity and, and different backgrounds. But Claire was in this group because I, I encountered her in the exact same way. And, and I brought you in. And apparently you two uh, started getting along and, and it was uh, the, I think the longest distance relationship I have ever heard of in my entire life, Portugal to the Philippines. But uh, here you are with your bride. Yes, so um, when you gave me the, um, the list of the contributors or potential contributors, even before we launched where Peter is, Claire was already there. And I started perusing the several authors to see what we, what they, who they were. And I found that Claire was on Facebook and I saw her walls and yeah, send her a friend request. We started chatting and he actually sent a friend request on the feast day of Our Lady. I think it was September 8th. Oh, that's yeah. uh, the birthday of Our Lady. Yeah. I know Our Lady has played a huge role in your relationship. Yes. Started off and then uh, 
she visited Portugal, you visited the Philippines, and got eventually got engaged, and then you got married in Fatima, correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we got married in the sanctuary of Our Lady of Fatima. Because, yeah. Where the, the three children were buried. Yeah, yeah this, where the three shepherds are buried. And because we thought that Our Lady of Fatima has been along us every step of the way, there were many obstacles, but we overcame them all. Mm -hmm. Today we're happily married and we we have Our Lady of Fatima to thank for that. We have a good devotion to Our Lady of Fatima. We think that she is the patron saint of our marriage. Well, congratulations. It's been, I guess you had your one year anniversary about a month ago, correct? Yes, right. yes. <laughs> so congratulations on, on one year of marriage. And you, you talk about, this is something I, I wanna bring up a little bit. So you've written a, a couple, a series of articles, one of which was called Reclaiming Fatima. And I know that one of the things that you encountered when you first started engaging with the English speaking Catholic world was this alternative, unauthorized, conspiracy theory based vision of Fatima. Can you talk a little bit about how the Portuguese view Fatima in contrast to this conspiracy theory, adversarial and polarized view of, of Fatima that's developed, especially in the United States? Just to begin with, Fatima is one of uh, the major cultural treasures of Portugal. It shapes Portuguese culture. Basically, Fatima can be said to be, if, if you want to have an analogy, Fatima can be said to be the same as uh, like the Statue of Liberty or something like that. Imagine that someday someone said, oh, the Statue of Liberty should, should just take it down and something. No, that's what we would think of uh, if we thought that Fatima would, would be closed. Okay, so it's a major part of our heritage. There was, there used, we used to have a saying that Portugal has three Fs. It's Fatima, football, and Fado. Fado is a, a kind of music, a typical Portuguese music. So it's the three Fs that compose like 80% of our Portuguese culture. So it has nothing to do with the way these conspiracy theories go along, no. If you go to Fatima and if you say, oh, what's your opinion on uh, Archbishop Viganò, or uh, what's your opinion on Pope Francis being heterodox on Amoris Laetitia? M most people there, Portuguese, and even foreigners probably, they're going to say, Vigan who? Or Amoris what? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they are just there to uh, show their appreciation to Our Lady because many of them experienced miracles, many, many of them experienced the help of Our Lady. So that's what they are there for. And if the Pope goes to Fatima, they're just going to go along with it and say, wow, let's go see the Pope. It's, it's awesome. It's like, they're not going to say, oh, here comes Bergoglio the heretic, you know. <laughs> of course, that. <laughs> 
it's true that many Portuguese people, we are suffering from severe secularization. Only 10% of Catholics here are practicing. So Catholicism for us is more like a cultural byproduct that people do not take it seriously. They practice contraception. Unfortunately, abortion is legal. Homosexual marriage is legal. Um, so we cannot say that we are very good on that part. Portuguese spirituality is much piet, popular piety, but not much theological content. And that might also explain why they are unaware of these, of these problems. But even, even then, I think there's kind of a, a genuine feeling to it because it's not marred by these theological considerations. They just go there because they have faith. In fact, I even have a very interesting story of a patient of mine that he was atheist. He used to always mock God. It was just part of his nature. And one day I knew that he had gone to Fatima. And then I was like mocking him in return saying, oh, you don't believe in God, but you go went to Fatima. What's up with that? Then he replied to me, uh, yeah, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Our Lady. And <laughs> I was like, well, okay, what? <laughs> but for him, there was no contradiction. So if Our Lady helps people to go back to the Catholic Church or even to be better, that's good. In fact, many Muslims, many Hindus also make pilgrimage to Fatima because they feel like that's a hub of sanctity. The Muslims also have a kind of respect for Our Lady. And Fatima is actually a Muslim name of a Muslim princess. And uh, Hindus, they, okay, they see some divinity in there. So Fatima also is a hub for those pilgrims. So why not, why not also be hospitable to them. So there's much more in Fatima going on besides what transpires in the media. The, what we see in the internet simply does not reflect Fatima or what you see or what you feel when you go to Fatima at all. There's also another thing that connects Fatima to our Portuguese national identity, which is something that Probably many people do not know, but the three little shepherds, the apparitions did not start with Our Lady. They had three apparitions before the first apparition of Our Lady. And those three apparitions were of a figure that is part of our devotion since the Middle Ages, which is the guardian angel of Portugal. So in the Middle Ages, there was this idea that not only people had guardian angels, but nations had guardian angels. So we have some statues of the guardian angel of Portugal. And the guardian angel of Portugal basically had three apparitions to the three little shepherds. And uh, he prepared the way to Our Lady. He gave them the Eucharist to show them the value of the Eucharist. So that's also one thing that connects us to, to our Portuguese identity. I think that's a very interesting 
piece of trivia there too. You know, my parents and my brother and my sister were able to go back in uh, 2008, but I was uh, married with, with two little babies and in graduate school at the time, so I wasn't able to visit them on that trip to Portugal, but it's on my list. And, uh, you know, so keep a space open on your couch. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay, just kidding. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but if okay. I, yeah, if I'm in the neighborhood, we definitely should get together. Yeah, it's an experience. I invite yeah. everyone hearing to go and see for themselves and to see if really, to see if I'm saying the truth uh, regarding Fatima's spirituality. Come and see. You feel calm. You feel connected with God. There's not going to be that kind of, the stress caused by apocalypticisms or catastrophisms, nothing at all on that. Now, I, I want to speak a little bit more specifically because one of the things that we've mentioned several times on Where Peter Is was Cardinal Burke's plea beginning in, I believe it was, it was 2017. It was the, the year of the 100th anniversary where he called upon the Pope to consecrate Russia explicitly to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And, and this is a controversy, just for a little bit of background, Our, Our Lady told Sister Lucia that she wanted, she requested that the Pope and all the bishops of the world would consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. And in 1984, Pope St. John Paul II completed this consecration but the terminology he used, and it was for various diplomatic reasons, he consecrated the entire world to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, along with the bishops. Now, Sister Lucia herself responded saying that his consecration was accepted in heaven, that Our Lady accepted it as fulfilling her request. But there are some groups in the United States, and at least one cardinal from the United States, who believe that this request was not fulfilled, and they're calling upon the Pope, assuming they even believe Francis is the Pope, to explicitly consecrate Russia by name. Now, is this something that's under discussion in Portugal, or is the consecration of Russia even part of the actual scene on the ground from your perspective in Fatima, or is this something that, that you had no idea existed until you encountered English-speaking well, conspiracy theorists? Well, uh, that answer is very simple. No. There's absolutely no talk in Fatima about a new consecration to Russia. Everyone here assumes it's done. Everyone here saw the miraculous fall of the Soviet Union, like very quickly, like in the span of a month. So no one here doubts that the consecration has been made. There's absolutely no talk about it. And uh, the cardinal, the cardinal uh, that now is uh, the bishop of the diocese where Fatima is included, he has been just going on with his homilies, with his duties, never, never mentioned that. Yeah, and, and I guess the other big issue is the matter of the third secret of Fatima, mm -hmm. which I believe prior to the year 2000, there was a group of agitators and typically the same group that was calling for a, a reconsecration of Russia. 
they were calling for the release of the, the third secret. They thought it should have been done back in the 1960s. And then when it finally was read and released in the year 2000, uh, many of them believed that either A, it was a forgery, it was completely made up, or that the entire secret had not been released by the Pope. Now, Sister Lucia died in 2005. She, I believe, was present at, at the uh, event where Pope John Paul II actually revealed the third secret. Is this an issue in Portugal that you are aware of? No, it's, again, completely outside our radar. Actually, the person who read the secret, and I, it was the first time I saw him, and I didn't know, it was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, so, yeah, the third, we, uh, <laughs> I remember, I was watching that. I was watching that at the time. Uh, so, many people at that time thought that it was like the end of the world. The end of the world is going to happen in the year 2000. There was this thing that end of the world is going to happen in the year 2000 because God loves round numbers. Uh, so basically, when the when the third secret came out, I don't I don't know the exact date. People were thinking, oh, it's the end of the world. The end of the world is going to happen at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, that's why the church is going to release it now. And suddenly there was the there was the reading of the secret, and suddenly everything was like. Okay, that was it. <laughs> it uh, that's, but in retrospect, it's actually very pathetic. It's about Pope. I actually wrote an article about that. It's about the Pope being persecuted. Not just the Pope, the Church, but then the Pope embodies that persecution, takes it on himself. I think that's the reason why those groups do not enjoy the Third Secret. The, because the third secret mandates something that they are not uh, very willing to pursue, which is obedience to the Pope. They are there for, with a religion at their own measure uh, to satisfy their own apocalyptic uh, views and their, their flavor for apocalypticism. So uh, they have to make up that it cannot be this. It has to be the thing that I want it to be. So it was not revealed or it's a forgery. It's very convenient, okay? But usually when God reveals something, it's what he wants it to be. So obviously it's not going to be some, something that is popular or something that people want. It's what it actually is. And the Pope is being persecuted. He was being persecuted. Many think that's the official explanation, that it referred to John Paul II being shot. But I really think that just like the Book of Apocalypse, these events just are recycled and happen every generation. The Pope is bound to be attacked uh, because he's an inconvenient voice, a, a source of sanctification in the world. So, of course, he's going to be persecuted. If we want to be faithful to the message of Fatima, we should not pile on that persecution. We should actually try to help. And I, that's one of the articles that I wrote precisely on Fatima, too. 
And another article also says that Mary and Peter are not in disagreement. They are cooperating. And just from a, I guess, sort of a general doctrinal Catholic teaching perspective, there are two things that people need to keep in mind. Number one, that Fatima is private revelation, not public revelation. And what is essential for our salvation is the public revelation, sacred scripture, what God himself has revealed to all of his people. And some people tend to elevate, sometimes it's Fatima, sometimes it's an unapproved apparition somewhere, uh, to this uh, apocalyptic level of dogma almost, and they, and they base their whole lives around it. And I remember attending a talk a couple of years ago by Jacques Philippe, who's, the, who's a French Carmelite spiritual writer, and somebody actually asked him a question about the role of prophecy and private revelation on spirituality. And he made it very clear that private revelation is beneficial for the church in the extent that it helps you grow in holiness and to build your relationship with God and Our Lady. If it makes you suspicious of current and future events or leads you to take drastic measures against church authority, then you're not doing it right. And, and I think what you're saying, especially um, for the Portuguese people, because this is the apparition that helps define your culture, is that Mary is very much that source of uh, spiritual awakening, spiritual awareness, and helps bring you closer to your faith instead of some something that predicts dire future events. Uh, yeah, some Catholics do get confused as to which voices in the church they should listen to. Some tend to put private revelations, whether these are approved or not, above public revelation, which is the gospel, and even above the magisterium, which is a teaching office of the church. So at my end, I have always believed that the Fatima messages, which are private revelations, are a reaffirmation of the gospel. The private revelations at Fatima are approved by the Catholic Church, and so far they point to truths of our faith. And that is the call to ongoing conversion and penance and cultivation of our Catholic piety and devotion. So I think it is much more important for one to pay heed to this call of conversion and penance than trying to find out whether or not these messages themselves have been fully revealed to us. But they're still private revelations, so they do not oblige Catholics to believe them because they don't belong to the deposit of faith. So at the end of the day, we must place our trust to the church that Christ founded and the primacy of Peter. Now, I want to throw the third conspiracy theory at you. And this one is when I engaged with uh, a couple of set of vacantists on um, Twitter recently about, which is this rumor or this idea that sometime between 1960 and 1967, Sister Lucia was switched with a body double. I don't know if you know this one, but you know, you look at the pictures of Sister Lucia prior to the 1950s and clearly she has her most distinctive feature i think is her is her teeth uh, you know they're crooked you know she was a poor shepherd 
And then she appears in 1967. She's older, she's gained some weight, and she has straight teeth. And so people are saying that this woman who confirmed the consecration of Russia and confirmed that this was the true third secret of Fatima, she must be an imposter. And now the explanation to me is she got older and she had uh, she got dentures or <laughs> or had her teeth fixed. But there's even a website where they it's funny they compare one picture you know before and after and they have these dots on on her faces with these lines showing oh look this you know cranial structure is different these couldn't be the same person. One thing I notice, however, is that they do absolutely no research. They don't ask her relatives in Portugal. They don't look at news stories. They don't find any contemporary reports. It, this is totally after the fact and only based on appearance. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this conspiracy theory at all, but you see articles even in English, and I'm sure there's more in Portuguese, of cousins and relatives who talk about her in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s. And they all must be in on this plot if, <laughs> if, if she really was switched out. But um, I don't know if, if you've heard of that or, or if you can- I, I have heard of that conspiracy. Uh, that's not something that I have researched in much depth because that's so bizarre that I, I don't, I can't even take it much seriously. In fact, I think that all comes razor comes in. If there's a simpler explanation, we just go with that. Now, um, I want to just ask one thing because I don't know. Um, you do they they say that the switch happened in the 1960s or when did they, when it should have happened? Um, I think the first instance where her uh, appearance changed. She made, so because she, she was a cloistered nun, so she only made a few yes, public yes. Uh, appearances, and she made one in 1967 where this quote-unquote transformation had taken place. So I think they say it happened before 1967, but okay. they don't give it So I can disprove dis that just by looking at Portuguese history. So in the 1967, those were the times leading up to the Second Vatican Council. Uh, when the apparitions happened, the regime in Portugal was a republic that had, rev uh, through revolution, overthrown the Catholic monarchy. But that it was profoundly anti-clerical. They tried as much as possible to smother the apparitions. Uh, in fact, there was even a month, August, when the apparitions did not take place because the shepherds were arrested. Or rather, the apparitions took place, but not on the 13th. So the, the shepherds were arrested by the authorities. And even the church was kind of wary of going along because they feared that the government would crack down on the church because of that. So after a few years, there was another revolution because that Republican regime was extremely, uh, extremely volatile. And uh, so there was a counter revolution basically. And the Republic was switched by a dictatorship, which had met, which basically used 
Catholic principles to um, consolidate itself. And many integralists liked that Portuguese dictatorship of the time, which had, of course, many bad things. It also had good things, but bad things that we cannot whitewash. One of those things was it was colonial. They tried to retain the colonies of the Portuguese empire, even when the native peoples wanted us out. And this became a source of conflict with the church because after the Second Vatican Council, Paul VI basically talked on their, his teachings were much in favor of decolonization. So there was a disconnect between pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II. Pre-Vatican II, it seemed like the Portuguese government was the most Catholic government of all times, at least that's what they used to say to the population. That's what propaganda said to the population. And after, afterwards, there was the, the, the Portuguese government suddenly, who had built himself on a Catholic identity, was not following Catholicism anymore, was not following the tenets of Catholicism anymore. So that dictatorship used Fatima also to consolidate itself. It would be very appropriate for the dictator to have Sister Lucia, Sister Lucia to basically say what conservatives nowadays want Fatima to say, because he was closer to these conservatives nowadays ideologically than with the post Second Vatican Council Church. That dictatorship only fell in 1974. So if the switch happened in 1967, it could not have happened. The government either would not have switched her or would have switched her for someone who would not go along with saying, oh yeah, the Russia has been consecrated. No, I am lying about that. I want, I want Russia to keep its errors. No, no, no. It would actually, if there would have been a switch, it would have been a switch with uh, Sister Lucia that would say, no, no, Russia has not been consecrated. There is still fire and brimstone coming up. There's much sin going along. So no, if the switch happened at that time, it was very well engendered because not even, not even a police state could notice that there was that switch. And the sisters of the monastery that live in seclusion for all their lives would have to be in it. Doesn't make any sense. This concludes part one of our discussion with Pedro and Claire. Once again, we would like to thank our Patreon sponsors, especially Lisa, Chris, and Stephen. If you would like to support Where Peter Is, please click on our Patreon link. If you would like to register to listen to Pedro's July 9th talk on Pope Francis and Silence, How to Defeat the False Angel of Light, please click on the link provided to register. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for part two, which will be posted later this week. Until then, God bless and take care.